see what you have prior to this. Uh, but this is what I will be doing with you. I'll come back. This is just the one lecture, but I'll come back in a month when you've started into eukaryotic molecular biology, and then I'm going to teach eukaryotic translation, which is a, a much bigger topic than the prokaryotes. So we're just going to do the introduction here. But I'll do it the same way, and the reason is, is because at this level, you're trying to get a PhD. And that means that you need to walk out of the door with knowledge that sticks with you, and you're able to pull out of the files in your brain and use. So that association skill is not, doesn't come naturally to most people. You need to train in it. And the earlier we start, the better off you are. So I'll also um, be working with Dr. Sinogles and Dr. Cox in doing one of the discussion classes in which you get assigned a paper and then you come in and discuss. Again, trying to get your early skills firmly planted for you. So I'm going to start out with the first presentation, which is a, a, just a slide. It's basically embedded in the uh, pre-study I had. Let's see if I can get the right one out now. Uh, yes, that's the right one. Um, I had some study questions. And I just want to bring those up. It wants to audio record. Don't record. Oh, yeah, I don't know why it wants to record. Uh, so, the first one. So, I, I actually do know a couple of people in here because they're in my other class. <laughs> so, I, I don't know anyone else's uh, name, and that's a little bit of a disadvantage. But, uh, so just volunteer, and I'll have to say you. I'm sorry. But, yeah, volunteer hand. So, let me tell you how it works. Your motivation to actually talk for most of it is that the questions on the exam will pertain to what we're talking about. If you don't come up with the answer among you, you're going to face that exam because I'm not going to answer it for you. Alright? So that's what your goal is. You have the knowledge among you. Maybe not any one individual person, but pulled together, you can get the right answer. <laughs> so all I am here is a facilitator. Right? It's a different way of learning. But it is a way that, that scientific controlled research studies have shown is a better way to learn and actually walk out of an exam and remember the materials a week later or two weeks later or at your candidacy exam, for instance. <laughs> yes, very nice. So, study question number one. The tRNA charging reaction, just with respect to that, what would happen if ATP were not available? We're in bacteria now. Okay. You wouldn't be, would be able to attach the amino acid to its respective tRNA. You would not be able to do that. Okay, would someone else jump in and explain why you would be not be able to attach the amino acid to its um, matching transfer RNA? The, the PRNA, the tRNA Yes, that's the right, that, is, that is the right direction to go, exactly. It's going to use that energy. And now, sometimes when, you know, you, you came into graduate school knowing that 
energy stored in uh, a number of different molecules, but the big guys in biology are ATP and GTP, right? When you use in biological systems the energy that's in those triphosphate bonds, you can use it and the energy is expended in doing some kind of work, or you can use it and the energy is stored in another new bond. What's going on in this case? Which of those two things is going on? It's stored. It's stored. That's the key to understand. It's stored. Now, the big question, what is it being stored for? Don't answer it right now yet. We're going to work our way up to it. But if you know the answer, you're going to do well with some of these questions. All right? So that was study question number one. So the next one. What would happen if the wrong amino acid is attached to a transfer RNA? I'm glad, but let's let's get other let's get more people to volunteer. Get it around. Yes. Um, it would probably influence protein misfolding down the line if the wrong the tRNA would make the amino acid sequence would be wrong, and so would it affect protein structure? It, it, it could well affect, affect protein structure, and what would that do if the structure was not correct? It wouldn't function properly. It wouldn't function properly. That's right. And that's been proven scientifically, just using some biochemistry. Took a transfer RNA that had cysteine. It was a cystineal transfer RNA. It had cysteine on it. They put it in the presence of a catalyst that was based on nickel the metal nickel, which is known to um, clip off part of that side chain in cysteine and turn it into an alanine. And they supplied a translation system with that altered tRNA, and every place that was supposed to be a cysteine, there was an alanine. So we know from scientific evidence that if there's a mistake made in charging, then it's going to end up in proteins. So how do we take care of that in biological systems? Obviously not something you want to happen. So in the pre-study, there was a slide that dealt with how, do, how does a biological system, a prokaryote, and eukaryotes use the same system. That's why it's worth studying too, among other things. It, they use it to make sure that you don't have a mischarged tRNA, or that the mischarged tRNAs are absolutely minimally low levels. Anybody think of another way? So one of the things that can be going on is the way I stated the question is not quite clear to you. It's not clicking the association. So how about somebody else, let's start by someone else restating my question. Or at least tell me what you think I'm asking. What is a mechanism the cells use to prevent um, improper TRNA amino acid association? The wrong amino sure. acid Yes, that is what I'm asking. All right, restate it that way. Anybody? Is it just the different structures that they fit perfectly? Um, the synthetase fits perfectly with the um, tRNA that's needed? Yes. 
every transfer RNA is specific for a, an amino acid, and there is one, at least one, amino acyl tRNA synthetase that's specific for that transfer RNA and that amino acid only. Its active site will bind only the physical shape of that transfer RNA and can only bind that amino acid with high affinity. Other amino acid species don't fit in its active site. So remember the slide now where they're all coming together and it's amazing how they, you know, subtle little differences angled this way, <coughs> deeper cleft that way, thrown over the shoulder. <laughs> it always reminds me of, of an adult holding an infant kind of thing. And the infant is the transfer RNA and the adult is the, the amino acyl tRNA. Uh, so, you know, thrown over the shoulder, held on the hip, all the different ways you can do it, and the, and the hip and the shoulder are perfectly fitted to the transfer RNA. So that high specificity because of the binding and also the active site fitting just that amino acid is how you keep mischarging from occurring. Alright, so and indeed it is one of the, type, the most faithful and tightly regulated systems within biological cells. All right, what would happen if GTP is not available? We're, we're, with respect to translation, I mean, obviously, both ATP and GTP are used widely and broadly, but with respect to translation. Elongation would be stalled. Elongation would be stalled. So, um, the EFT helps escort charged uh, and it uses GTP and then also the EFG uses GTP to help scoot the ribosome um, along. That's a good way to put it. It's scooting along. Yeah. It's a good way to put it. Alright. Good. And, and that GTP when the high phosphate bond is used up is that used to do work or is it stored? It's doing work because it's moving the ribosome, it's not stored. Okay, good. That's right, that's absolutely correct. It's being used to do work, it is not being stored. Alright. Uh, anybody there there's one more place where GTP is being utilized. Now that's the place where GTP is being used the most frequently in translation. There's another place that's used only once for every protein. Well, it's not elongation. <laughs> and it's not termination. So what has it got to be? <laughs> All right, good. So you know the three steps. Excellent. <laughs> See, you didn't even realize you knew the three steps. All right, so it's used in initiation. So what is using, what in initiation is using the GTP? It's a general name. You don't have to remember those numbers. They're numbered. Okay, well just make sure you know that. Okay, what if EFG was limited in supply? 
are not available. Something catastrophic happens, and EFG is not available, or limited in supply. Let's get a volunteer from over here. I've seen, I've heard nothing from this section of the class. Well, you, yeah, you're in the clear. <laughs> How about you? That's okay. Yeah, the, the, that's one reason the question's up here. I realize you need to make notes while we're doing this. Um, <clears throat> the transformer can't be can't be escorted in. So, assuming again, translation would just arrest or. You're on the right track. Stall translocation. It would stop translocation stuff because the EFTU is the one. Right, so that would be the correct answer if it was EFTU. And because that's the one that's escorting in each new charged tRNA as you elongate the next one. And then it's EFG. Yes, but that's good because you're beginning to grasp the concept that all these accessory factors need energy to work. If you do the math, protein synthesis is a very high cost to a cell. It's the highest cost process that is occurring in a living cell. Every amino acid, do the math. Start the protein, need a GTP. But for every amino acid, you have to have two GTPs just to get it in and to move along to the next codon. So you have a, a dystrophin protein which is the protein in your muscles that help you move, and if, you have, if it's defective, you have muscular dystrophy. More than 1,600 amino acids in every one of those molecules. So you start doing the math of the expenditure. Ah, oh, but there's going to be one more high-phosphate bond expenditure, isn't there? Oh, whoops. Isn't there question five? Uh-oh. Oh, there are only four questions. There was a question five, uh, which was going to be so. Why? Yeah, let me see. And that's, uh, yeah. So I'm sorry. Actually, there was supposed to be a question five, and I guess when I was doing the animation for this, I actually deleted it by mistake. So it's like, why is the ribosome called the ribosome? So, could you say that louder? It, the ribosome has enzymatic activity. That's correct. And so a ribosome is a, is a, has enzymatic activity. And there's a bit, can anybody add that to it? To, to, that's, part, that's part of it. What's the other part? What's a ribosome? It's an enzyme with enzymatic activity. And what else is very specific about it? It's an RNA, not a protein. So uh, actually, the idea that RNA could be catalytic came from the guys who eventually won the Nobel Prize after, uh, I think it may be the longest journey to Nobel Prize that uh, happened in history. And that is that they basically were trying to find the activity that the ribosome had that was making a peptide bond. Right? Because that's what you have to do. 
put the two amino acids together. And so they did what biochemists would do, which is come in with some detergents and start stripping off with detergents. Oh, and this is just for your information to broaden your perspectives. This would not be on an exam. Um, so broaden your perspectives in terms of the kinds of techniques you can use to answer problems, what experimental approaches. So you, you, you come in, you've got a big complex, and you say, well, where's the, the active part of it? So I'm going to start with some detergent, mild detergents, because detergents unfold proteins. So I know my complex is proteins and nucleic acid. So I'm going to start with some mild detergent and unfold some proteins. Some of them will go away. Oh, so wait a minute. It's a protein RNA complex. How many proteins were they facing? We need to know that composition. So when they're looking at a prokaryotic ribosome, how many proteins were they having to narrow down to? It's a ballpark, because the bacterial species to bacterial species, it differs. 50 to 60. Yeah, so you see, it wasn't like they could say, oh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." <laughs> you know, with 50, it's too many. 50 individual different ones. And then there was more than one RNA present, too. But the idea that RNA could be an enzyme was just out of the question. So it had to be a protein, right? So they come in, they peel off the outer layer. Still has activity. So they have an assay for peptide bond formation. So now you want to come in with salt, with some sodium. You peel off, unfold more proteins with sodium, and you raise the sodium concentration, destabilizing structure, a few more of them come off. And you keep they kept testing, and it kept having the peptidyl transfer, <coughs> peptide bond formation activity. So then they, came, they brought in the big gun, and that's potassium, potassium chloride. If you need to, if you've got a tough protein and it won't unfold, you bring in potassium chloride. So they brought in potassium chloride, and they got away everything down to five proteins. And it still had the activity, and they were jumping for joy because now five is not that hard to go after, you know? And then they had to hit it with very high um, uh, potassium, and at that point, all five come off. But considering that they narrowed it down from, five, from 50 to five, they were not really upset. However, they put what was left, which was just the RNA, into the reaction because they were good scientists thinking it would be negative, only it formed peptide bond. And they did that experiment many times, because it was very radical. And they tried to publish it, and it was rejected. Because RNA does not have enzyme activity. That's heresy. And they had to sit on that for more than a decade, until another man working with the docking protein, you'll learn about later, which is also a riboprotein, Indicate showed that the RNA in that docking protein is the catalytic subunit. And he got the Nobel Prize, this is Tom Check. And now, all of a sudden, the idea that there's a ribosome, and he coined the term ribosome, and then it was okay for the ribosome people to come back in and say, see, it is the RNA. <laughs> But they actually had to solve the crystal structure, and it was about two, 2000, and, yeah, about the year 2000, and then they ended up getting their Nobel Prizes. So, now I hope that story gives you an idea of what you can do with experiments, but also now maybe a physical, a physical picture in your brain of a ribosome and the peptidyl transferase. So it's a ribosome. It's an RNA molecule.
Now, let's look at what would happen if there existed a ribonuclease whose substrate was the rRNA. Oh, what is an rRNA? Ribosomal RNA. That's right. In ribosomes. What would happen? Let's get some new voices speaking up. Just start with the, you know, start simple and we'll build on it. It would inhibit protein synthesis. Yes, maybe. Okay, what does the maybe depend on? I mean, it depends on if that, the ribosome RNA is necessary for function, I guess, of the ribosome. Yeah, it depends on if it's cutting something functional. Because you can actually protease cleave some proteins and they're still functional because you cleaved off just a, a part that was needed to fold it originally. But once it's folded, it's not necessary. And we know that that's, uh, that is generally true of many proteins. So it depends on where it hits. All right? So what if it hit in the Scheindel-Garnos? All right, it would be bad. Somebody else tell us why. Why would it be bad if it hit in the Scheindel-Garnos? Okay, Aisha, I know you're <laughs> Where the... Aisha is in my other class, viral pathogenesis, and Jeff, I want to know why you're not speaking up, because you're in yeah, that yeah. class, too. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the other class, day one, the first class, is taught this way. They come in and they have to do it, so... <laughs> okay, Aisha. What's basically is the sequence that's recognized by the small subunit. It recognizes the, the messenger RNA and it starts loading, so it wouldn't be able to load onto the messenger RNA. Ah, and somebody else tell us what the it is that she's talking about? How about way in the back against the wall? Yes, what is the it that loads onto the messenger RNA? Someone else want to jump in? Help out? The ribosome. But what part of the ribosome? Small subunit. That's right. Small subunit in prokaryote and eukaryotes is always the first to look. Large subunit only comes along later. Small subunit. There you go. Alright, so it would be very bad if it hit the Shandalgarno sequence because then you wouldn't be able to get that binding because it's base pair to base pair between the ribosomal RNA. Yeah, so that's the other thing that is often asked is which RNA, ribosomal RNA, is it that contains the complement to the Shandalgarno?
Well, it's the small ribosomal RNA, right? That's why if you remember that the R small unit loads first, you'll know if that question comes up that the answer is it's the small ribosomal subunit ribosomal RNA. And they used to have you memorize the sizes, 16S, 18S. It's 16S in uh, prokaryotes, 18S in eukaryotes. But I don't see where that information is that. It, it doesn't serve the same usefulness that it did in previous times. So while you may see those terms, don't worry about it. I'm not going to ask you to pop up those numbers. But I do think you should know that it is the small ribosomal RNA. Okay. Oh, now where else? Where else might be catastrophic? What other place in a ribosome might a ribonuclease cut ribosomal RNA and cause a catastrophe? The transferase. Delgarno was a good start. The transferase. Um, ah, the peptidyl transferase. Ah, that activity is the ribosomal RNA. Now, which ribosomal RNA is that? And, well, uh, I've already told you that the small ribosomal one is the 16S. So, Jeff, actually, already, apparently, at some point, you had to learn that. Huh? <laughs> so, de yeah, it depends on what you, you've had in the previous times. So, the 16S, I've already told you, is the small ribosomal subunit RNA. So, what would your best guess be on what a 23S is? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, you got a it. large subunit. Yes, it's the large subunit ribosomal RNA. So while getting things started is up to the small ribosomal subunit, the peptidyl transferase that does the peptide bond formation is in the large. So you can't have protein synthesis without both of them coming together. They're both required. So yes, the peptidyl transferase is in that subunit. Now I am the one thing I am going to show from that oops, went backwards, sorry, from this is um, those are the questions I've been asking. Now, I'll remind you, from the pre-study, here is uh, not the entire ribosome, but this is that close-up. These are real structures on, on prokaryotic ribosome. And, ah, what's this? That TR, transfer RNA. And what's this, red, red thing? The messenger RNA. That's right. So this has got codons on it, right? So what would you guess this is? Anticodon loop. That's right. And then what would this be? Because you know the shape of the transfer RNA, right? Because you learned it. What would that mean? What's that be? The loud, yes, the amino acid will accept its stem. The amino acid is there, charged on this transfer RNA. And then these are, this is from some of the structural studies that actually demonstrated um, that the, the only thing that's <coughs> anywhere near enough to the amino acid in order to perform any kind of enzymatic catalysis is RNA. All the protein is too far away. So that was the final, that's why the structure uh, was the final proof of the evidence of it. So now, 
You see, there does exist in the fungus Aspergillus giganteus a toxin that it secretes. It's called alpha-sarsin. And it, it is toxic to humans, but that's not its intention. Its intention is, you know, bacterial warfare. It's meant for the fungus to use to compete with its, uh, its real, as we might say, legendary or historic uh, competitor, which is bacteria, fungus and bacteria, <laughs> fighting it out for the world. And you know they outnumber us, by the way, in both number and mass, biomass. So uh, this does exist. And understanding how this existed also explained to us that there is another. I don't know, just that we, we will, this won't be on the exam though, alpha sarsen is uh, for grass because alpha sarsen is naturally meant for fungus to combat bacterial competitors. But in the eukaryotic world, there is an equivalent. But let's wait and go into it when we get to eukaryotes. So this is, this is a repeating thing. Now this was a, a bit new. Anybody have any questions on this? It's pretty clear. It actually, this is a highly specific ribonuclease whose only known substrate is the large subunit ribosomal RNA. But I told you it's toxic to mammals as well too. Well, that's because the peptidyl transferase sequence of the ribosomal RNA in prokaryotes and eukaryotes is highly conserved and based on a single <coughs> adenosine residue. The adenosine residue is actually making the nucleophilic attack that's at the heart of the peptide bond formation and that adenosine is what the sarsen cuts. So it doesn't just cut near the peptidyl transferase, it cuts right in the catalytic site. Okay, give me seconds to catch up with me, and then. Now, using knowledge is one of the best ways to set it in place in your brain. Besides, what is the point of having knowledge if you can't use it? So what do we use knowledge about prokaryotic translation for? Well, one of the main uses is that quite a number of antibiotics act by inhibiting translation. And they act by binding to some part of the ribosome. And so here is a list of antibiotics. Now, I'm not going to ask you to memorize this completely. You know, I'm not going to say name the antibiotics that act against. I don't, it's not useful to learn it in that way. Learn to associate, well, not for <laughs> Not unless you're a pharmacologist. <laughs> Your pharmacist is different. But uh, so more the association that if you were asked how tetracycline or doxycycline work, and doxycycline is, is a derivative of tetracycline, um, that, that you would be able to say it's going to bind the small subunit. So you can't bind a charge to RNA. So it's, it's, 
Now, if, you, if it's blocking the binding of a charged tRNA, and now assume this is in elongation, not initiation, what accessory factor is it interfering with the action of? EFTU. Because it's EFTU that's involved in this. That tRNA is not by itself. And as you saw in the video that is based on real structure, that tRNA really doesn't fit into the site until it's put in there by the EFTU. So the binding site for these antibiotics is interfering with EFTU interaction with it and, and the charged tRNA. All right, so if you get to macrolides like erythromycin or azithromycin, ah, these things are things you're familiar with, right? Had them probably, prescribed. <laughs> okay, so now it's going to bind to the large ribosomal RNA. And it's really acting at initiation. So what this is... The association I want to bring in for you here is that these antibiotics are binding to the large subunit, the free large subunit, not a large subunit that's already assembled into a ribosome. And then you have the aminoglycosides, and uh, now they're going to bind the small subunit and do pretty much the same thing. So these two are. are, are related in how they're preventing initiation, but one acting on the small subunit and the other one acting on the, uh, the large subunit. And then clindamycin, which inhibits peptidyl transferase. But it's also not an antibiotic that you want to take unless you have to, because it uh, doesn't work very well against C. difficile, and if you're populated in your gut with C. difficile, you'll clear out all the competitors, and then you're in danger of having a, a rampant C. difficile uh, infection. But that's just insane. You don't have to know. Oh, Jeff wants to weigh in. Just the pharmacist of PharmD. Uh, PharmD. Uh, and I, I guess everybody has opinion, but I will say this. I am a victim of that mistake. Uh, and I had to have three courses of metronitrosol to clear out C. difficile. Um, yeah. So I'm like a big believer in it. But it isn't, you know, if you need, I would say, I'm just, you're going to indicate that if you need clindamycin, you do often need clindamycin. Because one thing about that antibiotic is it has incredible tissue um, permeation which a lot of other antibiotics don't have. So if you have a deep wound that's become infected, you really need something like clindamycin. So my cat bit me. And my, my physician didn't really have to did I, did I cover what you wanted to say, Jeff? No, I was actually going to mention the fact that with all the antimicrobials that work at the site of the ribosome, there's mm -hmm. a lot of controversy over what phase of protein synthesis they actually did. Yes, there is. The, the binding sites are relatively well understood, but if you look at four different references, you'll find four different explanations to what phase. So macrolides, elongation is typically what I would teach students when we talk about that, but there is data for initiation as well. And for the most part, all these drugs overlap with multiple sites of the PTC if they're 
combining the 23S and they inhibit, depending on what organism you're talking about, slightly different steps of photosynthesis. So other than the yeah, and it has since the very it's it's since they've had them, it's always been controversial. It's true. You can find um, research articles that support all different phases, and it remains a controversy. I kept thinking they would have to, I've been teaching this for 20 years, and um, 22 years actually, <laughs> and I kept hoping they would solve the controversy, but they haven't, it's true. But just for, so we have to settle on something. So uh, it is a good point for Jeff to bring out, because you may see sources that point out other things, but if I'm gonna give you something on an exam, I really need to give you something concrete. And so what I actually settled on is, is this is, and that's really interesting too, because this is what we teach the medical students. I know. <laughs> so maybe now you'll understand why sometimes the physicians are looking at you with blank eyes, because well, it's not quite coordinating with what they. That's because they've been in like six months. Yeah, that's true. But, so they need definite answers. But, um, and and I, basically, if, once you get your PhD, and I have faith that you will, uh, when you, one of the ways that you would need to know this is you would be using it in teaching. Just as, now I don't teach this to the medical students, uh, but because they have a micro course that they get taught in. But yeah, it's interesting, and you do find that kind of thing, that, that medical students are getting one side of the story, plus also medical students, they really just, they look at you and they say, just give me one answer, if it's complicated, make it simple, you know, so you end up teaching them very focused things. And, but it is correct, actually, that there is huge controversy. And all that anyone agrees with is that these guys all bind to ribosomes, they all act by binding to ribosomes, and they all block translation. But, um, but then evidence that they block in all different places. With the clindamycin specifically, that was the first antibiotic that they noticed the connection with C. difficile infections. So it has a long-standing bad reputation for that, but any it's not the only one. Any yeah. antibiotic can cause it, and actually, Clinda is not the worst. Uh, fluoroquinolones have been shown to be the worst. So things like Cipro and Levaquin have anywhere from three to tenfold higher incidence of C. Really? Ah. So um, that's interesting. Well, they get Clinda out. Like it's the number one antibiotic we use in people. That you use in what? Pediatrics. Pediatrics. Yeah. Uh -huh. They get most of the Isn't that like interesting? I never encountered it until my cat bit me, and he really went deep. And that's really not what you should give for someone who gets bit by a cat either. That's usually augmented. But. Ah! Obviously, the physician who did clindamycin. Uh, I mean, I, I will tell you, it worked on the worked on the wound. The wound. It was incredible how fast the uh, that infection went away. Well, cat bites usually don't need antibiotics because their mouths are pretty clean. Human bites require oh, antibiotics. Oh, no, it had gone beyond that. I had, I had, a, um, I had an Italian sausage for an index finger. <laughs> yes. And I was running, you know, like 101 fever. <laughs> yeah, it had gone to the stream. I, I didn't go immediately to the, <laughs> to the doctor. But, so you see that so many of the antibiotics, actually, some very key ones, are focused on translation. And so again, don't memorize this list because the question will have the antibiotics name in it. But know the association between them. 
how it's thought to act, and we will go ahead and stick to this. And just for the purpose of focusing in on something, because this may be your first time you're encountering this. All right. So the selectivity, that's actually, don't worry about that. I, that's why I didn't have it up to begin with. I was in ambivalent. Yeah, there we go. That's the bottom line. Don't, don't memorize that list. You just need to recall that the that antibiotics are exploiting the differences between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. And, um, and then to, to associate the general way. Large subunit, large subunit. Oh, sorry, large subunit, small subunit, tRNA and EFTU binding. Okay. So um, I'm going to go ahead and escape from this because we may or may not cover um, that based on what time is it? Okay, all right, good. Uh, I'm going to minimize this.
And, and the other thing is, is that, now see, I, 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 I have done this before, but we, if you do it in the bigger auditorium, you have clickers, and so I can see, people are putting in their answer, and then I can see it coming up on the register up here. Now, we can't do that here. So the other thing I need you to do is commit to an answer, write it down, and then if you, so just, you know, I don't have to get your hand up high, but just get it up high, because I need, I need to get, oh no, let's not do that. Your hand could get tired. <laughs> just, I'll just say, everyone finished, everyone finished? Now, by now you've realized I'm pretty darn good in figuring out who hasn't spoken up. So if it, do, not, do not consider that you will not say A you will, when I ask for the, cap, the head count on that. Plus the other thing is, is I'm good at math too. So we have 2, 4, <laughs> 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 people in here. That total of A, B, C, and D has got to be 16, right? So commit. <laughs> okay, translation for 200.
Anybody committed? Nita? Just shake your head if you need a couple more minutes. I'm not seeing any. Oh, so everyone's got their answer. You're committed. All right. Who thinks it's, who's, who's A? Goes for A. Two, five, seven, nine, and two is 11. All right, B. No one did B. C. D. Two. And E. Okay, no takers for E. E is wrong. <laughs> I'm not sure why I threw in E. <laughs> Alright, so the majority go for A, which is the transfer RNA charging by amino acid tRNA synthetase. Okay, but, but their um, word choices C, and everybody saw that B was not it, and then choices C and E. Okay, how about if I ask uh, those who, the, one of the folks who said D, tell us why it, wouldn't, it would not be, because this is not be directly inhibited by replacing GTP. So one of the, one of the good ways to learn is to defend your position. You know, I always learn stuff when I do this. I see, yes, there is that, um, so there is ambiguity about exactly how, what the role of the GTP hydrolysis is in the action of EFG in translocation. Um, there is a lot of ambiguity with respect to whether it's uh, directly causing conformational changes that are directly enacting the movement are whether all it's the, the EFG enacts the movement to the next codon and the hydrolysis of the GTP is necessary for then you've got to get rid of EFG. And that controversy, it, that, I'm wondering if that actually might be the source of, of where that came from. But it, the one thing that is certain is that GTP hydrolysis is required for the action, for translocation to complete and move on to the next elongation. And it just needs one GTP per That's very clear. That's very, very clear. And that GTP is directly bound to the EFG. And the EFG is the hydrolase. So both EFTU, accessory factors EFTU and EFG, as well as the initiation factor that's escorting the transfer RNA, those are the, that's what's actually physically bound to the GTP, and that's what hydrolyzes the GTP when the time comes for the hydrolysis to occur. So they are GTPases in 
in addition to transfer RNA escorts and ribosome moving proteins. Okay, so that was, uh, hopefully now that's straightened out that confusion because there's, um, uh, there is that n lack of really knowing at the heart of what EFG is doing with why does it need to hydrolyze GTP. But it does need to, so if you can't hydrolyze GTP, um, that step will be directly inhibited. Okay, so how about C? Where it's the uh, EFT, EFTU binding to the ribosome A site. Yeah. I just, I just said that it didn't require GTP, it said that GTP was required for this. Oh, so. okay, yes, all right, I got that. You don't have to hydrolyze it for it to bind. Yes, bind. Oh my gosh, I've got to change that one. Because it is correct. It is correct. You know, I said these things are so hard to write. Yes, because you don't have to hydrolyze it to bind. I need to reword it. <laughs> so then did it get, so the other, uh, now, so those, it is correct, and I can see how D was a choice based on some ambiguity in us understanding the system of how GTP works in translocation. But the, the answer was devised to be A. No, sorry, uh, yes, A. And so someone who voted for A, what was, why? What, what is it about, why would the non-hydrolyzable form of GTP not directly? Because you use ATP. Because you use ATP. Yeah, very straightforward. I will redo this one. <laughs> and the key is to get rid of that word binding, and then I'll have to do something to make that totally not ambiguous. All right. So if I, this should take us back. Next category and amount. All you have to do is choose translation for 400. Translation 101. for 400. 101 for 400. Well, yeah, that was a giveaway. <laughs> you might hear that music thing. Translation 101 for a thousand. 
Alright, there it is. go past that one really fast too. So you, you have a solid concept of the Shine Del Garno. By the way, as we, we haven't gotten to it yet, so it's okay if you don't know it, but does the Shine Del Garno exist in eukaryotes? Just in case someone knows, you will know after we finish. In a month from now, you will learn. <laughs> And I certainly would not hold you responsible for it for this exam. Uh, oh, well, okay. Now we know which one we're going to. 800, translation 101. Jeopardy? 
Well, it's not excruciatingly difficult, right? I mean, now that you've had it, taken it, it was pretty basic stuff, right? So that tells me and you also that you do have the basics down about translation, the things that matter that are useful for us to know and we can make use of and need to know. I want to add now to the material that you had in the pre-study something that I didn't put in the pre-study because it's a bit more difficult and I suspect that most of you have never seen this material before. So um, let's go into what happens after the ribosome has uh, started making the protein. So it's already been mentioned when I talked about, you know, what happens if you put in a, a mischarge of tRNA and you put in the wrong uh, protein, and the protein could misfold. And that misfolded protein could lack function. That's true. But we now realize that worse things can happen. So misfolded proteins can also cause even worse problems because they tend to aggregate. And aggregation of proteins within cells uh, can cause the whole system to clog up. And they can cause unfolded protein responses as well too, which then can trigger um, apoptotic pathways and, and let's not go into that anymore. I said, um, start to go in too deeply, you don't need to know that. So um, this, oh that's the wrong number, sorry, I think this is really five, right? Um, so this is about chaperones. The concept of chaperones. Well, the concept of chaperones comes from our understanding that while the amino acid sequence of a protein does contain the information for the function and for folding of the protein, that does not necessarily mean that the protein can fold correctly by itself. We now understand that many proteins require assistance in folding. And for a short period of time, they associate with these proteins that will assist them. Once they're folded, these assist protein folding assistants depart. They dissociate from the newly folded peptide. That category of proteins which assist temporarily with folding and then dissociate afterwards are called chaperones. And that's a key part of the chaperone definition that the protein that assisted in folding must dissociate and not be a part of the functional end product protein. So this is something that we're going to start off in prokaryotes. Um, there are also eukaryotic chaperones as well too, but that is such a big topic that when I finish teaching eukaryotic translation, someone else is going to teach you about eukaryotic chaperones. So the, um, what is going on with prokaryotes? So you need the correct structure and you also need to be in the correct location. And for some proteins requiring modifications. So, Here's some examples of why proteins need help. Well, because they have cysteine residues that need to have disulfide bond formation. 
But if you find a protein that has a single disulfide bond, then there's only two cysteines, and you're going to get the correctly placed bond. But if it has two or more disulfide bonds, that means you've got four or more cysteines. And they can come together in the wrong pairs, unless they're assisted for that. So they're, um, one of the jobs of chaperones is to get the correct, the cysteines to correctly pair with each other. And then recall that proline residues from your biochemistry, proline has a cis and a trans orientation. A cis turns the protein peptide chain in one direction, and a trans in an entirely different direction. If you're trying to fold a protein and that turn goes the wrong way, the rest of the structure downhill is going to have trouble folding. So there are proteins that specialize in helping the prolines isomerize in the correct orientation. Then, of course, there's subunit assembly, which means that you're going to have to get more than one protein together into an oligomeric structure, and only the oligomer is functional. And then the other thing is, is that proteins have hydrophobic stretches, and um, anybody just, you know, again, it wasn't the pre-study, but just from previous knowledge, know what the most frequently occurring amino acid is in proteins. Close. Very close. Leucine. And alanine second. They're hydrophobic, right? So by knowing that predominant, the, the highest abundance is high hydrophobic residues, then proteins by themselves are tending to have hydrophobic segments. You know, a stretch of three, four, five, six, seven amino acids that are hydrophobic or else, you know, just apolar, mixed in with some apolar, non-charged um, amino acids. <coughs> Excuse me. And hydrophobic water fearing, they don't solubilize well in water. But what's the inside of a prokaryotic cell? Big bag of water, right? Aqueous solution with high salt, which makes hydrophobic hide even more. <laughs> so they tend to aggregate. And a biological system has to deal with that. Now, when the protein chain is being made inside the ribosome, the ribosome is a very large structure, and the chain has to, see, to sort of make its way through an exit tunnel. And that exit tunnel protects it from water. So aggregation is not going to occur there. But as soon as it exits the ribosome, then the problem starts. So how do you deal with it? And that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize I had that, sorry. Uh, so these are called sh chaperones, and they were originally discovered in bacteria where it was known that if you heat shocked bacteria, and you know, heat shock can be as simple as taking them from 37 degrees and putting them at 39. We're not talking about a huge temperature difference, although putting them at 40 will do this even more solidly. But even if you just shift to 39 degrees, then what happens is many, many, most proteins unfold. Heat unfolds. 
Well, as soon as they're unfolded, those hydrophobic regions are exposed to water again. And there is a huge risk of, and in fact it does happen, they aggregate. If the cell survives that heat shock, it needs to put those proteins back in play again, but it has to refold them. And aggregated hydrophobic segments are one of the most difficult things to resuspend in an aqueous solution. So all living systems had to come up with a way to deal with temperature differentiations, and they developed a set of proteins that were recognized to be suddenly induced when temperature was shifted to the hot heat shock. And they were called heat shock proteins, HSP. And then there's a number after that denotes their size in kilodaltons. It's a protein, physical size in kilodaltons. So there's HSP 60, HSP 70, HSP 90, all those. Uh, and the, the most important one for what we're going to talk about is HSP 70, heat shock protein 70. And then they began to realize that those proteins were around even at 37 degrees, but just not that much. And when you made the temperature shift, they were induced. Their expression was induced. And that they were binding up the unfolded proteins, keeping them from aggregating. And their ability to keep the hydrophobic regions from aggregating was the first recognized function that they had. Later, we began to understand that they were actually then helping to refold the proteins. And that, in fact, they're outside of ribosomes helping to fold all the time. So um, the protein disulfide isomerases are the class of cat the category of enzymes that help get the disulfide bonds hold correctly. And we're not the mode of action is very well understood, but we're not going to go into it. Uh, the prolyl isomerases get the cis-trans orientation correct for prolines. And then for all the other business of, uh, you know, helping get foals correctly, then you have this other chaperone system. And we're going to talk about the um, GROW-E-L first. No, we're going to talk about DNAJ, DNAK, and group E. <clears throat> so our understanding of what's going on now is pretty good because we have structure of it. And so it's a complex, and this here is uh, a short peptide, which will be our surrogate for a long protein chain in these structures. So how this works is the uh, DNAK has three different domains in it. And they can fold apart from each other, as is shown here, and that's induced when they're binding ADP. When it's open like this, there's a cleft that binds peptides. And the peptide binds in that cleft. So we're going to start there. And let's imagine that this is a peptide that is on a peptide chain that just emerged from um, a ribosome. And now the next thing that's going to happen is we need to secure that peptide. And so group E joins. And group E is an ex exchange factor. So it's going to exchange the ADP for an ATP. It's going to 
So DNA cake cannot make the trade from ADP to ATP by itself. It has to have assistance from its exchange factor, group E. Now it's got an ATP, and, and that changes the structure, opens this up very widely, and causes the release of the peptide. And now the peptide's free. So that's what we understand that how it can work by hydrolyzing ATP. And then it's going to, after it's released the peptide, it's going to hydrolyze ATP and load another peptide. So what's going on here, and I, I hope you can see this. I didn't, uh, didn't think about that when I was looking at this. So you have a, a big ribosome here with an exit tunnel where the peptide chain is snaking out like that. And in a prokaryote, you have got these DNA Ks binding all along it. They bind along the entire length of a new peptide chain, new peptide chain called nascent, and they keep it from folding. Then once the entire sequence exits the ribosome, it releases it, all of them go through this step with group E, and then they release the peptide, and there's spontaneous opportunity for the entire peptide to fold with it all present. So the idea with the DNA uh, K is the worst problem is to have the amino terminus start to fold when the C terminus is not present. Prokaryotes have evolved that way, so they often have proteins whose end terminus is intimately associated with its carboxy terminus. And if the carboxy terminus is not made yet, it tries to fold, the end terminus is not going to fold correctly. So this is the prokaryotic solution, and it's very different from the eukaryotic solution. Alright? I'm not going to go into GROW-EL any more than to show you very quickly that it is a, if, if a protein fails under this to fold, the last resort is a huge complex called GROW-EL, GROW-ES, that's basically a chamber in which you can isolate a misfolded protein away from water and give it a chance to unfold and fold, unfold and fold, and try and get the right folding. We don't really understand exactly how it, it can tell whether it's folded correctly, but it's just a big chamber, isolation chamber, try, and if you can't fold, then it gets degraded. But most proteins make it folded through this system and don't have to go to grow EL, grow ES. Why this would be useful for you to know is because a lot of work that you might do or read about is done with proteins that were made in bacteria in order to make huge amounts of them and purify it, either to do biological assays or to do crystal structure, structural studies, or both. If you understand this system, then you realize how, what proteins it's capable of dealing with. Eukaryotic proteins that have single domains, which can fold with this kind of assistance, work perfectly in this system. But there are quite a number of complex eukaryotic proteins that have multiple folding domains. And they misfold when all they have is this document. They need the more complicated problems that can be there. Then you're faced with the choice you have to use a eukaryotic.